The fifth chapter of the book of James is where we're going to be reading, beginning verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Behold, the farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. You too must be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. But above all, my brethren, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth, or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes, and your no, no, so that you may not fall under judgment. The most natural reaction when we have been done wrong is retaliation. Do unto others as they have done unto you is our motto. Retaliation, revenge, getting even, getting back, holding grudges, feeling resentful is the common reaction of man. Nietzsche says that revenge is the greatest instinct of the human race. Bacon called revenge or retaliation wild justice, and Byron called it sweetness. There are three levels of retaliation, and they ascend up the scale. To return evil for good is animal-like. It's the hand that bites. It's the dog that bites the hand that feeds it. It's this base ingrate who... Um, forgetfully uh, resents and, and, and fails to give gratitude and expression of thanksgiving to his benefactor. To return evil for good is animal-like. To return evil for evil and good for good is human-like. It's the basic eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. You do me bad, I'll do you bad in return. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. You do me a favor, I'll do you a favor. That's human-like. To return good for evil, to return good in the place of evil is God-like. For He sends rain on the just and the unjust. Now what do you do when you've been done wrong? Before we get into this text, I want to read a verse of passage of Scripture. I want you to turn to that passage. It's 1 Peter chapter 2. I want you to kind of lay this passage parallel to the one we're going to study tonight. 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning at verse 18. Just the next little book over. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle. Now, it's easy to be submissive to those who are good and gentle. 
And it's easy to be good and to respond in a positive way to those who are good and gentle to us. Not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. What about those who are unreasonable? The word in the Greek there is a word that means warped. What about those who are warped in their actions and warped in their attitude? What about those who are crooked? How do you respond to them? He said. He, this is what he's talking about. He said, servants be submissive to those who are warped in every way, who are unreasonable, for this finds favor. It's interesting that that term, finds favor there, is, it really means action beyond ordinary human response. If you do this, this is the way, this is a way that is beyond ordinary human response. This is an action that is not normal to the, to the human uh, makeup. It's not human mode action. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it. This finds favor. There's that term again. This is an action that goes beyond the normal human response. Now here's, here's the amazing thing. For you have been called for this purpose. That is, you have been called of God to go beyond the human response, to return good for the evil that is done you. You have been called for this purpose. Since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in His steps. Now he's saying that Jesus gave the example how we're to respond when we've been done wrong. Who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in His mouth. He didn't receive, He, he received something He didn't deserve. He was unjustly treated. And this is how He responded. When reviled, he did not revile in return. When suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and the guardian of your souls. Now this is the amazing thing, that God has called us to act like Jesus acted. That is, to return good for the evil that has done us. Now I'm not talking about your dorm, the guy that lives on the floor down the hall from you, and I'm not talking about your wife or your husband. I'm not talking about your neighbor, your parents, your children. I'm talking about you tonight. I want to get right down where, as they say in West Texas, we hold right up to the corn. Some general observations about this text before we try to exegete it. First of all, this passage is addressed to believers. Four times he uses the word brother. There are two things that need to be said about this. Watch this carefully. Believers are expected to respond Christ's way rather than the human way. Now let me show you something. 
That neighbor of yours that, that has absolutely no regard for the gospel you, you believe and you, you, you teach, or that person that, that's, that goes to school with you, sits next to you and makes fun of you as a Christian, or that person that gives you absolutely not even the time of day when you begin to share with them your Christian faith, they may totally turn you off when you try to share the gospel with them, or they may uh, reject your witness and probably will. But let me tell you something. They expect you to respond the way Christ responded. They, res they expect that. And something goes on inside of them when they don't see that response from you. As a matter of fact, there's something happens to them and to your credibility when they see you respond any other way than the way Christ responded. That's amazing, but it's true. Second thing that needs to be said since this was written to Christians is that believers will be wronged. It's just not true that we're going to be protected from unjust treatment. Christians will be wronged. All right? There's a second thing by way of general observation, and that is this, that, that these verses are related to the social injustices of verses 1 through 6. And they have to do with the fact that these Christians in that culture did not receive a fair shake because of the, the social injustices of the time. And so what we're talking about here is a, is a treatment that, that relates to relationships and relates to, to everyday life. Every day of your life you're going to be mistreated. That's what he's saying. Third, there are four commands in this passage. Two of them are positive and the last two are negative. So that he gives us a balance as, as to how to respond when others do us wrong. There is a positive response and a negative. And then the fourth thing, there are four vivid illustrations. That's this text in a nutshell. Now, some specific explanation. What happens when somebody does you wrong? The first command is found in verse 7. Be patient. Be patient. This term is a combination of two words. It means, the first is the word that means distant or long, and the second word means heat or passion. And what he's saying is this, when you're wronged, be long-tempered, take the long view, have a long fuse, be patient. And this patience is, is, is dealt with as it relates to you and someone else. In other words, have a long fuse, a long temper with regard to other people. I'm impressed by this word, patience. Hupomoni in the Greek. In the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, in that famous love chapter, it's the first description of real love. And so he comes in, and, 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 and in this 1 Corinthian letter to deal with this church in conflict, the Corinthian church. And he comes to chapter 13. At the end of chapter 12 he says, I want to show you a more excellent way. I want to show you how to, to deal with one another, the way you're to live together in this world. As Christians, I want to show you how to live together 
and, and he said, this is the excellent way that should characterize your life, Christian love. Now let me tell you what love is. Let me picture it for you. Let me describe it. And the first word he uses is the word patience. And it teaches this, it tells us this, that you truly can't be loving another person as a Christian if you're not patient with that other person. Second thing that impresses me about this term is that as a matter of fact, you can't learn without impatience. You, without patience, with impatience. You can never learn what God is teaching you unless you have patience. What I was trying to tell, say this morning is that, that God has so much He wants to teach us in the dark. And the problem with many of us is that we try to run ahead and take matters in our own hands, but God is not working on the basis of our clocks and calendars. And God is pro trying to produce in us some, some fruit and, and teach us some lessons. And we'll never learn those lessons unless we begin to wait on the Lord. And he uses the illustration of a farmer. Some of us have that kind of experience in our background. And, and a farmer plants the seed and there's nothing he can do about um, accelerating or, and, or hurrying up the harvest. He just plants the seed and he waits for it to, to mature and to produce the harvest. And the only thing he can do is wait. And James says you wait for the coming of the Lord. There might be some kind of eschatological inference here. It may be referring to the end time, but I think he's, mean, he, I, I think he's saying there's some things that you have to wait for God to accomplish. And you're not going to do anything but foul it up if you try to take matters in your hands. And you wait till God comes on the scene and He operates on the basis of His timetable. And there's nothing you can do to, to, to hurry Him up. You just got to wait on Him. And so the first, the first command, the first observation in, in, in doing right when we've been done wrong is to wait for God to, to come on the scene and let God work this thing out. There's some things that you and I can't do for ourselves. Second, if patience, if we have patience, the next tendency is to get discouraged. And so he says verse, in verse 8, strengthen your heart. The word strengthen means to pump up. It means to support something that is heavy. It's what the psalmist was talking about when he said, cast your burden on the Lord and He will sustain you. It's the, it's the Hebrew equivalent. He will sustain you. He will support you when your heart is heavy. When you've been done wrong, roll that burden on God let Him sustain that for you. When somebody has mistreated you and done you unjustly, let him support that, you see. Roll your burden over on him. And then there are two negative things. He said things not to do. The first is don't complain. The word means to sigh or to groan. Complaining against someone else. Complaining against what has happened to me in life. You want the opportunity to witness every, to, to someone? You want the opportunity to have credibility in your witness? Then every time someone does an unkind act, you respond to them in a gracious way, and I guarantee it won't be but just a matter of time 
until you're going to be able to witness to that person. Someone tells a story about William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, and he had this man he was caring for and loving. He was so brutish and, and abusive, and every time he would do something cruel to William Booth, he would just respond in a gracious manner, in a gracious way, in a loving way. And one day the man fell at the feet of William Booth, looked into his eyes and sobbed and said, Love and mercy, love and mercy. You want to be able to bear witness? You want to have credibility in witness? Then every time somebody does you wrong, every time somebody acts in an unkind way, you respond graciously to them. It has tremendous impact. Then he says, watch this, don't, don't swear, don't take an oath. Now he's not talking about profanity, it might mean that in the broader sense, but in, in James's day, folks would, would take oaths to support their, um, their statement or what they were doing, what they were saying. They would just take an oath to support them. The word means to grasp something firmly, something sacred to support what we're doing, like in court. And, 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 and the picture is that here was a person who was basically dishonest, was basically a liar, but he would use an oath thinking that if he used that oath, it would, uh, it would give him some credibility. So he would hold firmly to the oath when he himself was basically dishonest. And what James is talking about here is basic honesty. And he's saying in essence that an oath adds nothing to the integrity of a liar. That an oath should not be necessary for a Christian. That there is this basic honesty about him that he wouldn't have to take an oath to support what he said or what he did. Um, F.E. Morris was telling about preacher, preaching, a service, preaching a sermon one time in which he talked about that, that a Christian must have basic honesty. I mean, good old hard garden variety honesty if he's going to be a Christian. This young man came up to him and after the service and he said, he said I'm, I'm convicted by what you said. He said, I, I work in a, as, a, as a shipbuilder and we use copper nails so they won't rust. And he said, I'm building a ship for myself in my garage and these copper nails are expensive so I, every night I carry home a few in my pocket. I steal them. And he said, I've been trying to witness to my boss and he's an infidel. I mean, he is just hard as, as he can be and to the gospel and now he said, I'm convicted about the fact that I'm dishonest. What should I, should I go and, 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 and confess to my boss that I'm a thief? And as they talked about it, F.E. Marsh said, you know, they basically agreed that he, he must do that. And so he went to this boss that he'd been trying to witness to with his, with his mouth, with his verbal witness. And he said, I've got to confess to you, I've been stealing from you all the time. And the man said, I've known that all along. He said, I know you're a thief. And he said, because I've known that about you, I have been appalled by the fact that you've been trying to witness to me. But he said, because of your Christian faith, your Christian faith has caused you to come and confess. I'm going to have to be honest with you, young man. I'm going to give it some serious consideration. 
And what James is saying is this, that this is how we're to deal with one another in relationship. There must be basic garden variety, honesty with one another. I'll tell you something, you go out and, and the world does it like this. Um, the battle of the, the, you know, the survival of the fittest, it's doggy dog, the way to get ahead is just rip people off, and etc. And, uh, and James is saying that you can't do it like the world does it. Now, some applications, four of them. Number one, don't focus on the situation or you'll be angry. Don't focus on the situation or you'll be angry. If you focus on what somebody has done to you, you focus on that situation, you're going to get angry. Second, don't focus on self or you'll be filled with self-pity. Don't focus on self or you'll be filled with self-pity. I didn't deserve this. Poor little old me. You know, what he did to me. Focus on self, you'll be filled with self-pity. Third, don't focus on someone else to blame or you'll complain. Don't focus on someone else to blame. This person or that person, I blame them. And finally, don't focus on the present. Look to the future. Don't focus on the present with regard to being hurt. Look to the future. Sure, this has happened, but it's not always going to be like this. It's going to be better tomorrow. Now let's pray. Father, we thank you for the instruction of your word that helps us in practical living. Grant us the will to be what you teach us to be. For I pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. There are three invitations. An invitation tonight to receive Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. Would you like to come and invite Jesus into your life? An invitation to join the church, maybe by your own transfer of membership, by what we call by letter or by... Respond in a more Christ-like way. You pray for that courage and strength. As we stand to sing, we invite you to come.